1: Greetings, guys. Welcome to the Bogo Pass Horror Podcast. As always, this is Scott. Uh, this is Jim. And this is Livio. Full hands on deck here at the Pass. And um, I say at the air itself is filled with monsters. It feels like it's filled with monsters. There's a really good reason for that. We've got special guest, um, horror, documentarian, um, author, former Pass member, Mr. Greg Mang, joining us tonight for uh, The Bride of Frankenstein. So, welcome greg and again thank you so so much for you know taking the time to to be with us
2: it's my pleasure and it's terrific to be with you
1: all again such an important film for for me i always it's oh god i I hate to say you know anything's my favorite because it just seems like Mm -hmm. you know things can change you know depending on moods or the day or the the year but i gotta say for me bride is and has been for a long time i think my probably my top universal film and for a lot of different reasons so you know, to be able to cover this, um, makes me both happy and a little nervous because to make sure I I do this thing justice. So I (laughs) I appreciate you, uh, you're joining us, Greg, lending your, your your expertise and your knowledge to this film.
2: Sure. Let me ask you this as we get started. When did you first see it? Uh, how old were you? Great questions. I
1: must have been, I would say seven or eight. Um, so here on the North Shore, and Jim and I talk about this all the time, because we both had you know different TV shows that would come on as when we were kids. So in my neck of the woods, it was Creature Double Feature, and it was you know Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings, and there would always be like a Godzilla, King Kong, something more sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And then it was something more along, like the Universal, the... Uh, the mgm's like a mummy and you know bride was always something that was on a heavy rotation you know at least in the boston market so yeah i saw this one very early on in my uh in my childhood uh,
0: yeah i think i came to this one a little later probably in my teenage years i think i'd i'd already seen a lot of the big ones and i'd seen wolfman and and wolfman versus uh you know frames i meets the wolfman i've seen dracula and some of the other ones um and then this one just uh, I guess it just wasn't quite available until um until I started really getting into the films and studying them and 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 stuff. So so it's a little bit of a later edition for me, but but that again, this, as Scott says, this is I mean, if, if if you can make the analogy, this is I mean, Brighter Frankenstein is the Casablanca of classic monster films, even though it was made before Casablanca was actually made. Um, it is it's it's the yardstick, right, by which we kind of measure how good how well-made and how, how fraught with, with meaning a film uh, like this from this era can be. So yeah, it's a, it's a big one. I think I was
3: around the same age uh, as Scott was, I was probably six or seven. So I, I started, I really started watching these movies at an early age. The, the, the very first movie I ever remember seeing was Dracula. Uh, and the second one was, was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. But I was, I think, I was about seven years old when these started really coming out on on VHS around ninety, ninety one, uh, somewhere in there. And used to have a like a mom and pop video store, and and uh, I would always come in and you know ask the owner for <laughs> to to get these monster movies, and he he would order them and come in, and I just would wear them out. So I think mm-hmm. I saw this around that age, somewhere between six, seven, eight years old. You
2: know, I think I was sixteen. i think it was i think in fact it might have been the last big universal horror film that i caught up with um i I think i had seen all the other frankenstein films and uh all the other key titles and for for some reason bride was elusive it just took a long time to actually get uh get on the air on a channel i could see uh back in those days and all that and i finally did i finally caught up with it and thought wow you know, I've been waiting all this time for this. This is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is super. You know, uh, what a shame I didn't see this earlier. So, um, so yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, for me, it came at the tail end. So, I mean, so of, of all the films you saw before Bride,
1: Greg, what did you gravitate? I you know, obviously now looking at your, you know, your written career and, you know, certainly your career and, and documentaries, you know, Frankenstein, you know, very near and dear to you. But at the time, as being in a younger, you know, younger man, don't, you know, did you feel that, um, God, that passion for it, or did, it, did that come in a little bit later date?
2: Well, it's funny. I think probably I really got hooked. Um, I was seven years old. <laughs> you know, So it was way before Bride. Uh, and I think the film that really did it was Son of Frankenstein. I just thought Son of Frankenstein was magnificent. Everything about it, the cast and the sets. And and, um, and of course, the scene that always stuck with me was that wonderful scene where uh, Carlos Monster found Lugosi's Igor dead and you know, looked up and let out that incredible scream. And, uh, I just was so moved by that. And it just stayed with me. Um, so I thought that was probably, um, that and the original Frankenstein were sort of in a tie as far as, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the top films for me. And then all this time later, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, finally showed his face and, um, you know, uh, there were so many things. Of course, later at that point, there were things I could appreciate that I would not have appreciated necessarily. You know, earlier on. I mean, for example, the opening. You know, I'm sure as a seven-year-old kid, I would have thought, you know, geez, what's what's this about? You know, it's it's where's where's this coming from? It was sort of like when I was a little kid and saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and they started to sing. You know, in the <laughs> square. And I thought, wait a minute, what is this? You know, <laughs> I are not supposed to sing in a Frankenstein movie. Uh, so, um, you know, I was able to appreciate a lot of the things that that were in there uh, by by seeing it later on, and then you know, having seen it so many times, seeing Bride so many times over and over again, uh, you know, picking up so many things that are just so unique and fantastic, and. And uh, subversive and 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 just just brilliant, just a re- remarkable experience every time you watch it. Yeah,
0: it
1: really is. It's one of those films. I feel like I pick up something new every time I see it. Um, yeah, and it's definitely it's it's more of a mature a mature film than say you know Frankenstein like Livio. You went the other day to see. You know Frankenstein, Dracula, and you know yeah. your young children. You know, or you, you mentioning your daughter, I don't want to tell the story for you, but you know, wept at the end of Frankenstein. And just, I mean, for my whole life, you just read these stories about back in the '30s and the '40s, and you know, these poor children going into the theaters and bonding so much with the monster that it was, you know, it was oh, god. I want to choose my words carefully here because again, I, I the thought of your daughter crying doesn't make me happy, but the fact <laughs> that the, the the film is is still that powerful in 2021 yeah. is yeah. is
3: is great and such an, a good thing, right? Yeah, I was I was nervous because um, I mean, they, most of the the old classics they've been exposed to is, has typically been towards the the latter half, you know, like the monster rallies and stuff. So it wasn't too, you know, too, too emotional, I guess. And and of course, you know, kids, they kind of kind of come and go, th- you know, in and out the room before they are not really sitting there and, and paying attention. And I was nervous because of the scene with Frankenstein, you know, throwing little Maria into the lake. I thought, oh, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to go over. And and at that time, it was fine. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, I kind of look over and she's, she's got like tears streaming down her face. And I thought, oh, oh no, <laughs> I've, I've done something wrong that, you know, I thought she's upset about that. And I said, that was the first thing I asked her. I, you know, I said, is, did the, the scene with the little girl, did that, you know, make you mad? And she said, no. And I said, well, what's you know, what what's wrong? And she said, she was just sad that the monster died, you know? And, and, and I said, oh, I said, well, why is that? And she goes, well, because he, he was just made, he didn't know how to act. He didn't mean to do all those terrible things, but everyone was just so mean to him. And, and I just thought, you know, same thing. I mean, I, you know, hated seeing her upset, obviously, but I mean, the fact that, you know, here, Boris Garloff, you know, 90 years later is, is still, you know, reaching out and, and getting this re- reaction, you know, out of, out of, out of the audience. I think that's just, I, I I doubt there'll be many movies made in 2021, 90 years from now that will have, will have the same same reaction. So I thought it was awesome. That's great.
2: That really, that's very very impressive. Mm.
1: No, I mean the reason reason why I was still talking about these films. I just what a great great story. So I want to start digging into this, um, get into the movie. But I know Olivia, you had a uh, a little sidebar
3: for, yeah. for Greg. So. Please do this, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna bite my lip and try not to laugh too hard. Yeah, I have to, I have to uh, throwback, so I don't know if Greg remembers or not. So, but I actually met Greg in 2004 it was the Monster Bash convention in 2004, and I'm, I'm giving away my age here, but I was 20 years old back then, and uh, you know I, I still had known Greg through his through his books and commentaries and stuff like that, and huge fan then as I am now, and I remember um, I would you know, it was kind of wandering around the, the lobby and I, I saw him standing there and I had this opportunity. So I thought, okay, I'm going to collect my nerves and go up and I'm going to introduce myself and tell him a fan. And, and I was going to ask for his autograph. And, you know, I went up and, you know, said, oh, you know, Mr. Mank, I'm, I'm a big fan. And and I really, really liked your book on Karloff and Lugosi. Would you mind? I had a picture of uh, the black cat and I, of Karloff and Lugosi. And I said, you know, would you mind autographing this for me? And he just kind of looks and goes, how dare you speak to me? And, um, you know, it was a little, (laughs) I'm kidding, of course, (laughs) kidding. Uh, no, it was, it was a, it was an awesome experience. It was a great thing. You know, there's a, another horror historian named Tom Weaver describes Greg as uh, every monster kid's best friend. And I I think that's, you can't put it better than that. You know, you won't find a nicer, nicer guy to talk to. So I'm just had to throw that out there as a, as a story and and just thrilled to be here talking about this with you.
2: Well, that's very, very kind of you, Olivia. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that.
1: So let's get rolling. Bright of Frankenstein, of course, 1935, starring Boris Karloff as the monster. I should say simply billed as just Koloff. And how powerful <laughs> is that? That opening title title shot of you know Koloff in... Yeah. Um, of Course, the great Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, uh, Valerie Hobson this time playing Elizabeth Frankenstein, exactly. uh, Ernest, which we'll get into, um, Ernest Thessinger as um, just a mm-hmm. wonderfully perverse Dr. Uh, Pretorius, um, and of course, Elsa Lanchester as, um, oh, the Monster's Bride, slash, uh, Mary Shelley, which we'll get into. So I don't know, Greg, you had some, um, you know, some, some dirt to drop on us, but let's start talking the early, you know, pre production of the movie. And I had you know, kind of doing just a little bit of research. Had would read some of the the floating titles out there. The early titles were, you know, the New Adventures of Frankenstein. I think it was one of them, um, The Monster Lives, Return of Frankenstein. What can you um, tell us maybe something about the, uh, the early, the early
2: beats of this film? Well, it kind of goes back to a kind of crazy situation. And that is that um, in... 1933 in june 1933 um carloff walked out on universal all right and of course he since frankenstein he had made the old dark house and he had made the mummy he was a big star uh but in early 33 he went to england to make the ghoul and while he was there he was, he was having a wonderful time first time he'd been back in london since he had left like in 1909 and uh and and everything and he wanted to stay a little longer uh to enjoy himself he wanted to he actually got an offer to make another film there and he you know Telegram Universal, can I do this? And they said, no, no, you have to get back right away. We want you to do The Invisible Man. And uh, uh, Carlos said, well, um, you, you know, all right. So, so you know, he, he got on the ship and came back uh, very reluctantly to do this and uh, gets off the ship and uh, gets a trade paper and reads it. And, it said, and he sees this headline, Universal Negotiating with William Powell, the star as The Invisible Man. All right. And so he came all the way back here to hear that Universal was negotiating with a different actor to play the part. As it turned out, William Powell turned them down. So they were back to use it, you know, to the idea of using Karloff. But he reports back to Universal. This is, in, you know, June 1933. They owe him a salary raise, which they hadn't given him. He says, you know, I'm due for a salary hike. They say, well, we're really sorry, Boris, but, you know, these times are tough. This is the Depression and so on and so forth. And uh, we're going to you're going to have to keep working, you know, at your what you've been receiving all, all the while, and Carlos said that's Said I'm gone, and he walked out. Now, the way this relates to uh, the return of Frankenstein, as they were calling it, is that the fact that Karloff walked out, and of course, Universal I thought: not only did we just lose Boris Karloff, we just lost all our hopes for a sequel to Frankenstein, because you cannot make a sequel to Frankenstein without Boris Karloff, and that guy just walked out the gate. And you know, what are we going to do? So within 48 hours, you know, they have a deal cooking to getting back. Um, and they realize that they better really get on the stick about getting a script ready uh, for him for the return of Frankenstein because they don't want to lose this opportunity uh, because they figure this will be another, you know, mint that, uh, that, uh, the, the, that we made for the studio, but with a Frankenstein sequel. So um, they start coming up with a whole grab bag of crazy scripts. All right. They've got a bunch of them uh, that um, th- that they come up with. And I think I think the most interesting one was one by a man named Lawrence Blockman, usually wrote detective stories. Blockman wrote a story in which Henry Frankenstein and Elizabeth are traveling through the mountains uh, as puppeteers. All right. They they are uh, drawing incognito, trying to hide the fact that they're Frankensteins. They're traveling through the hills incognito, and uh, they, uh, they they are part of a carnival, and so it's a pre code film, of course, at this point, and the film is sort of a mix of Frankenstein and freaks. All right, I mean it's it's really way out, <laughs> way out on the edge. Uh, they have all these crazy carnival attractions uh, in the circus, including uh, a lion tamer and a giantess, uh, who are uh, the, the uh, lion tamer is named Mimi, the giantess is named Fifi. And they're a lesbian. They're a lesbian couple. All right. So we have a we have a lesbian couple in the carnival. We have you know. I mean, it, it's just it's just way out there, way way off the page. Now is that is that the same script, Greg? And
1: correct me if I'm wrong. Is that that the, the a lion eats the monster at the end? Right.
2: And the lion. Yeah. What happens is the monster shows up. He gets uh, Henry Frankenstein to create him a mate. Uh, the is so full of ardor for this gal, he grab, scoops her up as soon as she's alive, runs into the woods to, you know, consummate the marriage. Uh, she <laughs> dies. All right, doesn't stay long enough to consummate the marriage. He's really, really ticked off about this. He comes storming back into town, starts tearing the circus down, opens up the cages. Uh, first, he goes after uh, the lesbian couple. First, he goes after uh, uh, Mimi and Fifi. And he drags the giantess through the street by her hair. He strangles the lion tamer. Uh, And then finally, he lets this lion out of the cage. And he and the lion have this fight to the finish. And the lion wins. Sounds so. like
3: a cross between murders in the zoo and uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, crazy stuff. And uh, apparently this script, though, just really laid an egg with everybody. I mean, nobody liked it. Uh, it was such a it was such a d- disaster. Apparently, Universal didn't even send it to, uh, you know, to the censorship office to, for, to, for a review. I mean, they just say, this, this, this is hopeless. we got to hope for something better. Um and so what happened was that they eventually uh, they, they hooked up with a fellow whose name you all know, uh, John L. Balderston. And um, John L. Balderston, of course, had his name on the credits for Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and this sort of thing. And Balderston rewrote uh, the script. And a lot of the stuff that's in Bride of Frankenstein, as we know it today, is uh, material that uh, that, that Balderston brought into the game, uh, the prologue with Mary Shelley. Uh, for example, it was uh, was was a John L. uh contribution. All right, and um, uh, the, the the monster gang, again. It's a, we're, we're talking about pre code here. So uh, the monster at one point uh, is in the woods and he, he spies on a cottage of peasants and he sees uh, the man and woman making love. So he learns about what physical love is. All right, this sort of thing. Uh, the little when the little girl who lives with that family sees him though, she screams in terror. So the monster goes berserk. And he starts smashing the cottage apart in his frustration. At one point, you know, he, he he actually smashes the statue of the Blessed Virgin holding the baby Jesus. You know, we start to get into that sacrilegious kind of thing that we see coming up later in bride, uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, he learns to talk in the script. This is this is where he, you know, he moves away from the muteness and starts to talk. And um There's something missing from this script, though, that is very important. The next one that is that there is no Doctor Pretorius. Instead, there is a priest named Father Gerard, and Father Gerard is an exorcist. All right. So when (laughs) um, when Henry Frankenstein begins to create this bride for the monster, because the monster says he'll kill Elizabeth if he doesn't, all right, Um, uh, then uh, you know they they have um, they got trouble on their hands and. uh there, there you know there's all this disaster and, and storm and drawing that goes on and um uh the the bride comes to life uh, she's she's not a very nice monster uh she's she's attractive all right in baldson script she's got you know hair rippling down to her waist and all this kind of thing but as soon as she comes to life she's got a she's got the hots for henry Right. She wants something to do with the monster. She she, she's she's got it for Henry. And uh, actually, actually, she starts to almost, you know, seduce him right there on the spot in the laboratory. Once again, the poor monster gets, you know, very, very upset, very angry, kills Henry, kills Elizabeth. All right. And um, by this time he's speaking and the, uh, the the priest, the exorcist speaks to him and teaches him about God and said, God loves him. And the monster falls on his knees and looks to the heavens, Says God love Frankenstein because he calls himself Frankenstein. God loves Frankenstein. And, wow. uh, you know, has this, this beatific moment at the end and then lightning hits the laboratory and blows it all to pieces and the monster is killed. And the priest just left there to, to kind of, you know, take in the, the, the scene. So, um, so it's, obviously God doesn't love him that much, <laughs> not that much. No, he's, he, to get him out of there he's he's had it <laughs> it's been so long he can do things like you know like he's been doing in that script right. so so it's 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 wild and both scripts had all kinds of crazy you know pre code material that that uh that would have been you know very very out on the edge uh the one in fact uh that um that blockman wrote i believe is the one uh in which um you know when when uh the monster decides when Henry Frankenstein says, "All right, I'll I'll create a bride for you." The monster goes looking for parts, body parts, and at one point there's a scene, supposedly, where you see a bunch of nuns, you know, in a procession, and they're on their way into the convent, and right behind them is the monster, following them along, and of course they go inside, and he gets in there with them, and the doors close, and he's screaming in pandemonium, and then he he. <laughs> i have got an entire convent of nuns. All right, but so these these writers are having a damn good time, you know, putting this thing together uh up to that point and uh and uh, it's really it's it's really pretty wild pretty wild yeah. stuff. But um it's interesting that before the one, one last thing to mention here before we get into the movie and that is that even with this the the movie almost it almost didn't get made at this point because there was this enormous civil war this enormous uh, family quarrel at universal you know we all know about the Lemleys, carl Lemley senior carl Lemley jr carl Lemley senior gave carl Lemley jr the studio basically when he was you know, 21 years old to, to run as he saw fit and junior did a great job he did you know all quite on the western front which you know, won best picture oscar and started dracula and frankenstein a whole horror genre this kind of thing and um his father, I think, was a little jealous of him. And also his, his father was really shocked by the kind of movies that Junior was making. All right. I mean, he's really upset about this. He's, you know, I mean, Junior in 1934 produces The Black Cat. when We, we all know about <laughs> The Black Cat. Right. I mean, you know, he's, he produces a scene in which, you know, Beta Lagozi skins Boris Karloff alive on a rack. You know? And he also uh, produces One More River, which is a story about, you know, uh, a sex pervert who beats his wife, all right, played by no less than Cullen Clive, all right, is the sex pervert, uh, this sort of thing. And that movie is condemned by the legion of decency. And so old man Lemley is thinking, you know, what have I made here? What have I done by putting my son in charge of the studio? Look at these awful movies he's making. I got to do something about this. This is a disaster. All right. So he, uh, he has a party and he says, I'm going to send Junior on a three-month vacation, three-month trip, actually, to uh, all over the world to go on a talent search. And uh, for, the, for the sake of the studio, I'm going to send him on this search. And um, <laughs> he, uh, he uh, sends him to New York to board the, the ship to go to Europe. And as soon as Junior is in New York, the uh, uh, senior, his father, puts his son-in-law, his own son-in-law, Stanley Bergman, Junior's brother-in-law, puts him in charge of the studio, stabs his own son in the back, all right? basically sends his son into exile in New York. And then from there to Europe, or you're planning to send him to Europe, Junior collapses when he hears the news. Now, the significant thing about this is that when this happens, all of Junior's projects are on hold, which means at this point, there might not have been a bride of Frankenstein. All right. Because if the old man had anything to do with it, he might've just pulled the plug on the whole thing because, you know, if he caught wind that they were writing these scripts in which, you know, uh, you know, there was these religious statues being shattered and, and nuns being, you know, ripped to pieces and all this other kind of stuff that was going on in these early scripts. Uh, you know, there was, you know, we, we might as well just, you know, completely throw this project out the door. Um, so uh, it went on for several months, wondering what was going to happen. Finally, um, uh, Junior came back and, you um, Came back, in fact, on Christmas Eve, came back to Universal, and he said, you know, I'm not being pushed around anymore. I'm taking over here. I'm going to make sure my films get made. Bride of Frankenstein started shooting the first week in January, and so he saved it. But it was Junior Lemley that saved that movie. If he had not come back from this exile to which his father had sent him, there may never have been, you know, a uh, never been a Bride of Frankenstein. Wow. That's wonderful
1: stuff, Greg. I had not heard, I've I'd never in that much detail the strife between the father and son. Have you? I mean, Jim. I know you've you know, long time Universal. Have you have any in inkling of that? Of you know, the, I the stripes?
0: Yeah. I'd, I'd heard a little bit about it, but I never heard it told as entertainingly as as that that version yeah. that Greg just gave us was. Um, I didn't I didn't know about the the kind of double dealing with the dad and stuff. That's really interesting. Um, I think it's. I mean, it's obviously fortuitous that he came back and and made Bride of Frankenstein, but. You know, Greg, I think on a, another podcast, I think it might have been Invisible Ray or something, uh, Scott and I were talking about how, like, I mean, I think, I kind of think without Pride of Frankenstein coming out and being such a hit, there's this good chance that Universal's entire horror industry, you know, you know, you know shingle, peters out, because it seems like it was starting to run a little bit out of steam by 1934. Um, You know, they've done all the Lugosi-Karloff films and stuff and into 35. And then it seems like, um, and, you know, it was, I, mean, I, I don't think made that much money, but it seems like Bright Frankenstein injected with a whole new to bunch of electricity, right? You did. You're absolutely right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Okay. and then we have life from scene. there, we have the Wolfman, Frankenstein versus Wolfman Monster mashes uh, and into the 40s with Man Made Monster and all the other fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, you're absolutely absolutely hit it on the head. That's 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 precisely it. If that if that
0: film had flopped uh it would have been the end of the road yeah Yeah. super important great and without that do we end up getting Godzilla do we end up getting Hammer Films do we end up getting right you know yeah that's right the legacy
1: anyway I mean the only thing I'd really you know heard much about you know with Bride is really just Wales you know disinterest you know obviously he thought you know he didn't want to play himself out he always seemed like he was very you know (sighs) I don't just kind of nervous of you know of you know doing the same thing you know over and over again, you know. I mean, if since he like he did he put out Frankenstein, he thought, you know, he's kind of been there, done that, um, you know, really pushed hard against you know, like again, Bride. Um, but
0: all right, yeah, that's so, my what question. What 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 real quick before we really get into the film, one one last thing, Greg. Like, like what because because they want to do a sequel, as far as what I've understood, as soon as Frankenstein was a success. What and Whale didn't want to do it, and he and he goes and makes other films. What brings him back for Bride of Frankenstein? What what makes him make that decision to come back and do a sequel?
2: I think he was attracted really by
0: the by the uh,
2: the more subversive elements that that they were getting into the script, uh, and the fact that he could go into this, these areas with it that um, that he hadn't gone before. And he had just had an incredible fight with the uh, with the censorship office, the production code, over that picture he One More River that we mentioned, which he had directed. Right. And um, I think he kind of enjoyed that. I think he kind of enjoyed going back and forth with, the, uh, with Joseph Breen, who was the censor, and kind of playing this cat and mouse game with him about what they could actually put on the screen and what they couldn't and, and how he could disguise, uh, you know, what, what he was putting up there and, and, and how he could compromise and this, this, this crazy game that was going on between the two of them about, you know, what they could really put together. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, you know from the point of view of a censorship, what was allowable and what uh, what the you know the artist James Whale himself wanted to, wanted to inject into it. So I think that 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 was it. I think he absolutely wanted Whale to be able to do it his own way, no doubt. You know, he wanted if he was going to do this, he was going to do this picture his own way. And in fact, that. Uh, Briefly, or I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, one thing that we perhaps should mention, since that was a very good question about that, uh, is the fact that there was another level that happened here from the John Bolton script. We mentioned that, that that uh, you know, there originally was no Pretorius and this sort of thing. Uh, there was another writer that during all this exile with Junior in New York and everything and, and kind of wondering whether the movie would ever be made, that Whale brought in another writer uh, to work on the script named William J. Hurlbut. And Hurlbut had been a great Broadway playwright. Well, I don't know if I'd call him a great Broadway playwright, but a rather notorious Broadway playwright uh, in the Roaring Twenties. And he wrote a play, uh, used the title Bride again, he wrote a play called The Bride of the Lamb, Bride of the Lamb, L-A-M-B. And um, in 1926, and The Bride of the Lamb starred Alice Brady. And it was this wild melodrama that played Broadway. And it was about a woman who was sort of a... Uh, uh, frustrate, sexually frustrated religious fanatic in this small town. And uh, this revivalist preacher comes to her, her town and she falls mainly in love with him at first sight, basically. And uh, she gets progressively uh, hot and bothered, I guess we should say, about how she wants to have an affair with this preacher. And I mean, and again, it goes delirious. All right. And by the by the second act, the climax of the second act of the three act play, Right. Alice Brady, who's playing this role, is on stage and she is, you know, in this complete paroxysm of passion and she's going back and forth and she's praying and she's praying to Jesus and she's talking about how, you know, she wants to embrace the lamb and she wants to, you know, be, be you know, drenched in the blood of the lamb, hence the title. Mm-hmm. And of course, she's talking about, you know, Jesus Christ and uh, she gets herself so completely worked up and so so out of her mind that she has this, you know, violent orgasm on stage Falls on the floor. All right. That's the second act curtain. Um, <laughs> the, the, the third act then proceeds with um, uh, basically she kills her husband. All right. Goes completely crazy. The sheriff comes to arrest her. She comes out of her room. She's made herself a bride costume, you know, just out of some you know, little flimsy stuff. She's made herself a bride costume that she's put together in a veil and all of that. And she comes out and she says, Oh, I'm on my way to my wedding. Uh, you know, because the, the preacher's not going to marry her. She knows that at this point. I'm on my way to my wedding, and you should. You all have to meet my my bridegroom, and all this. And and she she keeps pointing to him, and there's nobody there. It's like he's invisible. It's like the, the, the you know the playing movie Harvey. Where, you know, she keeps talking to somebody, and nobody's there. And she's she reaches over and takes the arm of this invisible figure and she says, you know, here is the man I'm going to marry today. His name is Mr. Christ. All oh right? my lord. And then she and then she turns to the door and she walks out going, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh now <laughs> I I know this place sounds absolutely ridiculous, but for the Broadway Roaring 20's audiences, man, they ate this up. This was like, you know, the last <laughs> word in, in crazy stuff. And whale, of course, would have been in England at the time it was done, but he'd heard about it and he thought. Wouldn't it be great to get this man Hurlbut to they meet that guy? Yeah, that guy do the final <laughs> script for Bride of Frankenstein. Wouldn't it be a hoot to get him involved in this? And I think Will kind of had his back up because of what Senior Lemley Senior was doing to to, uh, to Junior Lemley, and I think he had his back up because of what you know the production code was doing. And I think he thought I'm going to play a real fast one here, so he gets Hurlbut to come in, and of course Hurlbut writes the uh, writes the script, and he's got a scene in there which. You know, the monster, as we all know, is in the cemetery and he sees, you know, the Christ figure on the cross. And as it was originally written, he goes up and and, uh, you know, actually grabs the Christ figure, you know, puts his arms around and tries to get him off the cross. And, of course, when that script went into the uh, into the censors, you know, Joseph Breen said, "Uh, I really don't think you're going to be able to do this. Uh, You know, you may really want to think of something else here. Uh, And, of course, we all just had him as it it turned out just to kind of, you know, he uh, who eats up a tree instead. Yeah. 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 so, so, so yeah. So he, whale went along with it because I think he figured he was getting away with murder. All right. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was really, he was, you know, he was working at a very eccentric studio where all kinds of other horrible things were happening. A father was, was basically, you know, crucifying his own son and you know, throwing him out into exile, putting his, Uh, father putting his son-in-law in in, in control instead all this gossip was going on and whale's thinking gee hey this is basically a great spot for me to you know to really inject some really crazy stuff in this movie and give people way more than they ever expect they're going to see when they buy a ticket to see a movie called the return of frankenstein so um so yeah so i think that's why whale jumped on it like that i think because he was you know he was he he was going to get his way
1: and I feel like I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg. I mean, just how perverse you, the play that you just described. This has all the makings of Pretorius,
2: right? Yes, I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that's exactly it. It's and that's who that's that's where he came from. Pretorius jumped out of the mind of uh, of the great William J. Hurlbut, and um, uh, that's where that's where they came up with him. Wow. <laughs> 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 I am speechless for the first time in a long time. But
1: that's that was a yeah one heck of a story. And oh my goodness, nice. Well, let's get into um, Bride of Frankenstein, of course. So you mentioned this, you know, early grind kind of this, um, this you know, long, prolonged um, from um, a stormy night in Lake Geneva. So really, you know, interesting scene. As a as a kid, I never understood that. I probably once I first got a, you know my first VHS of this film, I used to fast forward to the scene. I think I appreciate it a little more as an adult. Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley and Lord Byron sitting around
0: recanting tales in mm-hmm. uh, in Lake Geneva. So, in this we- uh, in this gothic castle, which if you've seen a picture of the Villa Diodati, which is where actually Mary Shelley and 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 Percy and 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 uh, Polidori and. and and uh, Byron Allstate. It's, it's a, it's like a chateau. It's like a little mansion. It's, it, it, I mean, it might be kind of dank or something, but it's not a, a cathedral or a keep like, like we see here. So they, they've definitely taken the Liberty to, to, uh, to uh, ostentationize it, it up a little bit and make it more yeah. dramatic, but it's great. It's a great scene. It is. And it's, it's a beautiful set. Yeah. And a beautiful set interior and
2: exterior. Yeah.
3: And if you look closely when, when the, when you first see the shot and you'll see, Oh, it looks like a maid, you know, scurrying dogs off the screen. That's actually yeah. Una O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I didn't
1: recognize without the screaming. I got to be honest with <laughs> <laughs>
3: not,
2: not hysterical in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good thing to point out, Livio. Yeah. And, and wonderful way she can walk, you know, but that it looks like without her feet touching the floor, that kind of like little. She glides. Little, she, yeah. She glides, yeah. Floats through the room. Yeah.
0: yeah. Her little scuttle. Yeah. But
1: yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Mary Shelley of all, you know, she deserves her own, I mean, never mind podcast episode. She could almost have her own podcast and this weekend away with, you know, Lord Byron and, you know Percy Shelley talk about perverse, you know, stories of of that, you know, of of their summer away together. But um, we'll we'll keep it uh, we'll keep it quick here. So yeah, basically retelling the story of um, Mary Shelley and they were you know the stormy night here in in Geneva and you know obviously Mary came up with the story of Frankenstein and scared uh, the britches off of especially uh, more Lord Byron, um, you know, and, and Percy the great poet um and you know one brush, she's like well, i don't want to talk about monsters blah 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 blah. and then she's like no we're not done yet i'm going to tell you another story and starts rolling right into um kind of the next the the, the 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 after the demise of the monster um kind of this this new story so it was kind of kind of interesting and um which, you know, how- which is really
0: the second half of the book really the the whole his his sort of uh exodus into the wild you know the monsters uh him meeting the well in the book it's a it's a family with an older man in in our version here it's a it's a hermit um a lot of that's and then and then obviously the the creation of his bride is, is happens in that back half of of the actual novel so it makes sense that she's actually saying like no, no no there's a there's another section of it here you know dig it and and here we go and it's a great device to to recap what we what happened in the first film obviously because not everybody in 1935 or is is has has seen the 31 and they don't have access to it there's no home video there's no anything to to you know do a catch up like when you see the next marvel movie or incredible hulk or, or whatever now you're like you can watch the first one again and remember everything um it's a great device it, it works great and the casting of of Elsa lanchester as as Mary Shelley and is is so smart and ahead of its time and and just and and like a, such a good wink um that, that it's easy to overlook it now when when you know a lot of stuff is supposedly supposed to be that clever but but this was this is a little bit of an insight this is great yeah
2: it is it it's very very effective and um and, and she is, is such a great characterization there with Mary Shelley. She's so yeah. sly and kind of uh, you know, has this sort of little lascivious air about her. And um something else that that had happened with that scene. and uh, i'm 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 apparently dragging your entire podcast down into the mire with with these stories. but uh, <laughs> when when they uh, when they finished the film and 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 showed it to the to uh, you know the, the censors to to Joseph Breen the first thing he came back with uh, of to cut is he said, there are too many close breast shots of Mary Shelley in the, in the, in the first scene. Uh, You're going to have to go through and take them out. And so apparently, you know, of course she's wearing a rather low cut dress Mm -hmm. and just, and uh, you know, apparently uh, whale made sure that he photographed her, you know, as revealingly as possible. So that was one of the things that whale did agree to do uh, as far as cleaning up the film is that he did remove some of the more overt, Shots
0: of Mary's. Mary's Some of the shots look of her look a little blown up too. They they might have just like you know done it or whatever. Um, But I think I mean it makes sense because what. What they're kind of hinting at is is the fact that Mary Shelley did have an open relationship with her husband and and was on occasion with other men as he was with other men as well. I think they were both with Byron at some point or another. So it, it kind of, it, it, again, it's that wink of like, these people enjoyed a lifestyle that is not typical to the average 1930s film yes. viewer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not, not what they're used to. If you go
3: back and listen to the... uh to the score so uh, a lot of the score is actually still exists and is available now on on cd for this movie but this this cue the the prologue and kind of minuet is as franz waxman has titled it it runs about five and a half minutes long obviously much longer than the scene in the movie so you can kind of you can listen to it and maybe get an idea in your head of, of all the various things they had to trim or cut out
0: all right Oh, that he would escort it to and then they then they cut it so they've got to trim the, the music and stuff. Yeah. yeah,
3: that's brilliant. Well since you since you opened the
1: can here with this uh, the open relationship weekend here Jim, uh, now now all I can picture is like Lana Atwell sitting on a couch, like just smoking a cigar, just like taking this all in. Like it would have been his kind of steam, absolutely. Like he's like the he's like the the, the keeper of this
0: like party, or I don't know, or Charles or anybody. Yeah, it would it would have yeah exactly. So again, it's just it, but it's just like the reality of a lot of these actors and filmmakers' lives and whales like in 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 general, is that it, it's the open secret that no one's allowed to say out loud. And I, again, I, I just think it's one of those ways he has of subtly. You know, you know, inserting uh, some, uh, you know, a sort of subversive agenda into something without it's it's again. We always talk about the, the Charles Lawton thing about how you you can't censor the the twinkle in his eye. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very true.
1: Yeah, so a really quick scene basically brings the viewer up to speed on what happened in the thirty one Frankenstein, and you know, as we cut to um a Frankenstein and brighter Frankenstein thirty five. We're right at the the burning mill and um first scene to go. we have um you know the classic Una o'connor minnie kind of holding court here so minnie is a kind of a you know works for the frankenstein estate and she's on she's a maid or just kind of a, a housekeeper i guess but um you know holding court she's kind of like and i feel like she's kind of the rabble rouser of this little village you know if there's something going on minnie's always there and you know kind of poking her nose into things so you know minnie's there right at the the base of this burning mill um, and she has, a, you know, it's kind of some um, some cute dialogue with her and um, e. e. Clive, who now plays the Bürgermeister in um, yeah. *Ride of Frankenstein*.
0: So they've got a, there's, you know, kind of a cool, cool cat and mouse thing. And yeah. there's obviously um, been an election at some point for Bürgermeister during the chase of the Frankenstein monster, because <laughs> now suddenly, suddenly, uh, 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 Lionel Belmore's out, and e. e. Clive has suddenly become mayor now. So that's right. Um, <laughs> but he's good. He's fun. He's, we, we loved him. And uh, again, he's, he's an invisible man. Whale consistently uses the same people over and over again, obsessively. He he puts Dwight Fry in this film in another role as, as Carl as as opposed to, to Fritz and stuff. He's, he's, I don't know if he's loyal as to his cast as much as he is. I think he, I I mean, as, as a filmmaker, I can say like, you know, if you develop a shorthand with a certain actor and, and that's X amount less effort or, you know, thought or time you have to put into something and, you can just bring back the, the the old the old crew. Everything gets that much easier, you, and you know what they're going to bring you. You know what O'Connor is going to bring you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've just
0: <laughs> a lot of screaming.
1: Yeah, we always a huge O'Connor fan. So, um, yeah, the wreckage of the the mill. So the belief is that the monster has perished in the flames, and um, crowd disperses. So now we have Hans, who I guess name changed from the first film. It's Maria's dad. So if you remember the thirty one film, Maria's a little you know cute girl who um, is thrown into the lake innocently and and drowns. So now we have Hans, who's Maria's father, um, who's needs to see uh, the bones of the monster, you know, he's still seeking revenge. And he has, you know, anger and, and hatred towards this this thing that, you know, murdered his, his daughter and his wife. And so he ultimately falls through um, the, um, you know, the burning um, wreckage of the mill. Into this, you know, little underground um, waterway where we meet the monster for the first time, and this is always such a fun scene because you can see just the wonderful job of Jack Pierce, you know, showing you know the monster's been through a fire and yeah. he he wears the uh, damage of something that's been, you know, burned and um, just some wonderful, great
3: shot of the monster here. I agree. And you pay attention to the talk about the expertise of that makeup throughout the film. It's it's progressive. You know, Mm -hmm. his his wounds will heal. His hair will grow, you know, from the first time you see him to the to the final scene. Yeah. Just a wonderful, wonderful job by Jack Pierce to to really kind of follow that. That continuity. Uh, I'm not even sure how many people, even at the time, picked up on that. So it, it, that's a fantastic, fantastic makeup job.
0: Yeah. It's so, so, and you also, I'm sorry, Greg. You also just get to see the seam that goes not only just across his forehead that we know so well from you know from from the first film, but it also like cuts down his temples and over his ears. So you you really see this. You can see the engineering that went into taking the top of his head off and putting the brain in. It's not just that simple pie cut around the top. There was it was a process and they, they make a point of showing that it's it's incredible. The bolts. Uh,
2: Greg, you going to say something? And just uh, just what uh, what we were saying there, that that is just an incredible job with makeup and the thought that went into it is about how it changes as the film goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Pierce really was, he was, he was remarkable at what he did.
1: Yeah. And there's so many stills, you know, even today of, I don't want to say like Halloween costumes, but so many stills of the monster and it's stills from this film and he's got, you know, got kind of the burnt hair, the burnt cheek cheeks and, and whatnot. So a layman would probably just assume that's what the monster looked like, but of course, as four, you know, being the astute um, monsterians that we are, no,' it's, it's the, 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 the effects of this uh, of this fire, but just a, a wonderful, wonderful scene. So ultimately, the monster um, kills Hans, drowns Hans, comes up, pulls his poor wife down, she takes a very, very nasty fall under the watchful eyes of, a, of an owl for whatever mm-hmm. reason monster comes up and face to face with Una O'Connor Millie. And, and so in my notes here, I just have, I just call it quote, the Una O'Connor thing. And yes. I, in my mind, I just, I know exactly what that means. And You're all, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> The manic, the manic silliness of, of, of her being is just incredible. It, it vibrates. It's incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny with that scene that, that again, to get back to the senses for a moment that, um, when, when they saw the finished film that uh, Breen said uh, the, the, the drowning scene with, with Hans uh, is, is too much. You have to, you have to take it out. Um, and it has to be indicated off screen. And uh, Will said, well, I'll, I'll trim it a little bit. All right. I'll make it a little shorter. And, uh, and Breen said, well, all right. And he said, also I, I, the, the, the scene of the, of, of, of Hans wife, you know, coming bouncing over the wheel and, you know, fit down into the water. That's way too rough. That has to come out. And uh, Will said, no, no, I won't take it out. I won't take it out. And um, so it stayed in, Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and basically Breen said, well, then then you let it be on your head if it goes out into the various states and the state censors all complain and, you know, give universal hell about it, then you'll have to be the one to answer for it. And and, um, Will said, oh, there won't be any problem. Uh, Did they have it?
1: Do they ever have issues, Greg, with the original Frankenstein? So I'm thinking, you know, that the very one of the last scenes of Henry being tossed off that windmill and just that body hitting the blade and just stops and, you know, stops in in mid rotation. It's such a nasty scene. Um, It
2: is. Yeah, it is. And it's very, you know, because you really have come to uh, sympathize in a way with the. you know, with with Colin Clive, despite you know the fact that he's made a monster and so on and so forth, Uh and so when you see him, you know, take that really rough uh, demise, Well, well, what originally is, you think is a demise, and you know, gets thrown off the off the balcony, and you know, yeah, like you just like you say, and hits the the vein, and that happens. It's like, oh wow, boy, he's really yeah. paying. he's he's paying for his sins. That looks yeah. like it hurts. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's dreadful.
0: Yeah. In, in fairness, uh, I've probably seen Brother Frankenstein in the theater three to four times. I'm not sure over the years. And uh, every single time, I'm pretty sure when when the wife gets tossed down the steps and and lands and stuff, the entire crowd laughs. It's it's I don't know what it is. They don't laugh when he's when he when he drowns the, uh, uh, the guy, but when he tosses the wife down. <laughs> the whole place goes up and i i guess it's just like oh this is this is what we bought our ticket for okay here's here's the monster doing the things the monster does i don't know if there's a yeah. there's a satisfaction thing there it's like oh okay we didn't know we're very well either so who cares <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know you wonder too and that that you know as we, as we mentioned that in in frankenstein he's he's called the uh, little maria's father's called ludwig and that he's called hans and um in the Bride of Frankenstein and. When, uh, you know, the monster's coming up out of the mill and puts his hand up and she says she she, she sees him and she says, oh, here, give me your hand, Hans. Give me your hand, Hans. <laughs> right. And my uh, my wife, Barbara, and I've always thought that, you know, Whale probably wanted the name change because he loved the way that sounded. You know, give me your hand, Hans. Just had such a <laughs> nice comic ring to it that you uh, no, said, no, nobody will remember. He's Ludwig. He's going him
0: Hans, So, <laughs> So <yeah. laughs>
3: What's your vector, Victor?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they say Ludwig for Ludwig suddenly shows up at the end, not to skip ahead at the end, when they're building, when they're bringing the bride to life, suddenly, suddenly Henry Franklin's like, come here Ludwig. And there's an assistant named Ludwig that we've never seen before. And I just, I was like, I don't, I, again, it's that thing where you, you find something new every time you watch it. It's like, where did Ludwig come from? Oh, okay. yeah. It's a popular name in that, uh, yeah, so one so one thing we can
1: um keep in mind here. So the the belief here, at least the early belief in the film amongst the villagers, and you know, and we'll, we'll get to the scene really quickly. and Elizabeth is that Henry is dead. He's you know he's been killed from the, the fall from the the mill. So basically, they bring Henry's lifeless body back to the castle, which brings us to Frankenstein Castle. So Elizabeth, um, who's who's now played originally by May Clark by Valerie Hobson. So we can talk about this a little bit, um, Greg, and you know. Certainly, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, you know, my understanding through through history is that she, or May, was involved in a, a car accident
2: and wasn't able to film. Yes, she had been in a car accident, and uh, she also had had some, um, sadly, some emotional health problems and had been in and out of, of hospitals and and things had kind of, you know, gone downhill for her. And, of course, also the thing, a part of, I'm sure a, a significant part of it was that Valerie Hobson was on contract, at Universal at the time. And uh, May Clark no longer was, so it was you know very easy to sort of pop Valerie Hobson into that role, um, and um, you know she certainly suited it. And uh, and I think also that she, she was seventeen at the time, which is remarkable. But I think that um, she was able to kind of give Whale again that sort of loony uh, Elizabeth that he wanted in this. You know, I, I think uh, May Clark's Elizabeth is just is, is very nice and demure and. And uh, everything that you would expect to our heroine to be, but uh, uh, you know, uh, Valerie Hobson's Elizabeth is like some kind of you know crazy angel. You know, you can expect her really, respect. yeah, especially
1: yeah. the scenes where the you know she has the premonitions, and you know May Clark, yeah. you know in the thirty one film had some of those premonitions, and certainly played it so much different than yeah, you know Valerie yeah. Hobson in that bedroom scene.
2: Yeah, yeah. She's very, you know, very Hobbs, very very old Vic, you know, in it. I mean, you know, it's like she's been in Shakespeare for years, the way she, <laughs> the way she barnstorms that scene. Yeah. And um, and I, I think that's I think it's really cool that in the in the movie that even the nominal heroine, you know, uh is is out on the edge, you know, that she suits the style of the
0: movie. Well, she's the you know, she's the other title character. She's she's technically the bride of Frankenstein too. So that's I, right. I think that's it's right. interesting that I think she has to be the match for. The, the the monsters mate in yes. a way. So I think bringing her into her, making her just Scott, you and I talked about how she's kind of almost like a medium, um, like between like this world and the next and stuff. She she brings this like ethereal thing. I also think of that way. She's more like Mary Shelley too. She she makes me think more of a more of a, a gothic romantic character rather than a, someone of the '30s, which May Clark tends to kind of come across as.
3: Yeah, yeah. So so question for for Greg. I, I know that May Clark was was a little taken by Colin Clive, which does, by the way, translate, especially on the big screen, having just seen the original Frankenstein in the, in the theater, as you can see it in the way that she looks at him. Uh-huh. Um, there's not much acting there. Was Valerie Hobson similarly, I guess, taken by him, or, or did she have much of a, an opinion on Clive? I'm not sure I've, I've heard much about their relationship.
2: Uh, she felt rather sorry for him because she could tell that he was in pain, you know, uh, uh, emotional pain. And uh, she said that, that she felt that, you know, that he seemed like the kind of man who couldn't uh, fight back against his, his own problems. That, uh, you know, that there was some kind of great sensitivity there that uh, that they that they couldn't, um, you know, that, that, that she wasn't really sure where it was coming from, but that she could sense it, some sort of torment. And um, uh, briefly, in one of the funny stories she said, she said that, what you know, where was such a, it was so all business about the film that when she shot the first scene with Clyde, which was when she goes into the bedroom and does the, you know, the the angel of death speech and all that, um, that Whale didn't even introduce them, you know, that he just said, all right, you know, uh, you know, calling into the bed, you know, Ms. Hobson over here, uh, let's run it through, you know, and they ran it through and he's all right, camera, and they did, this, and they did the whole, you know, they did the scene in a different shots and he, and uh, Valerie Hobson said, you know, at the end of it, she was very really hysterical and, and uh, you know, sort of laughing wildly and fall into the bed with him, you know, and so she did. She, you know, she spun around and fell into, you know, right there into the bed with Colin Clive and, and James Earl walked up and said, Oh, by the way, Miss Hobson, this is Mr. Clive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she, in her little negligee and you know, yeah, that's yeah. Right. act like a crazy one. That's, that's fantastic. Pretty darn
0: Hollywood right there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, she was, a, she was, a, uh, 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 you know, she felt she knew something, something was, something was broken there
3: with him. So, yeah, uh, it, it, yeah. Even physically. And it's, I don't know. It's 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 interesting. I guess um if not a little sad that there's what four years difference between the original Frankenstein and and Bride of Frankenstein, and Colin Clive looks like he's aged a good eight to ten years. It, you you see similar things. I mean, if you look at Lon Chaney Jr. from you know the Inner Sanctums and the House of Frankenstein in 1944 to Avent Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948, he looks like he's aged about 15 years. I mean, so the you know the effects of the self-medication that a lot of the stars at the time put themselves through was was very evident.
0: It's that all rye whiskey diet, yeah. Well, it sounds
1: like two stories of Clive, you know, breaking his leg very shortly before the filming here, which I think you know attributes to most of his scenes or a lot of his scenes, you know, laying in bed, sitting in chairs, you know, because he really yeah. wasn't in, unable or wasn't able to move or in so much pain, right.
2: Right. So hey, another uh, uh, scurrilous story number eighty five here, and that's uh, that <laughs> <laughs> that uh when I spoke with Valerie Hobson, which I was real thrilled to, to, to interview her, uh, by telephone in in in, 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 in she was in, in England. And um and she said, you know, she talked about the the very first scene she's in and she has that incredible satin gown on and um uh, and I said, what a beautiful gown it was. And she said, uh, and she said, oh, I, you know, with the fur trim and all that. And I said, yeah, she said, oh, she said, no, I, I was awful. I, I was wallowing around. I didn't like an elephant. Uh, I didn't, didn't like it at all. And she said, and plus, uh, 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 she said, you know, James Whale came to me and when we when it was time to, before when I was supposed to get dressed that morning. And he said, uh, now it's, it's, very important that, uh, you, you wear no lingerie at all under the dress. And she said, Oh, and he said, yes, yes, it won't. The dress won't work if you have any lingerie on under it. So you can't wear any lingerie under the dress. So she said, you know, I had to play the scene knowing that I, I hated this dress and, you know, knowing that I was naked under it. And, uh, uh, you know, of course today, I guess she could very easily get a, you know, a woman's rights group to come in and say, don't you dare tell me to do something like that. But, uh, in those days, again, you're talking about 1935 and, um, so she was, uh, yeah, yeah. So that was the that was the fashion choice that he had for her.
1: Well, and before we move too far from Valerie Hobson, so Greg, we talked a lot about in your episode with us with, um, you know, you book One Man Crazy, The Life and Death of Colin Clive. But just some really wonderful photos for, you know, anybody listening who wants to, you know, learn more about Valerie Hobson or just see some really cool photos. Greg posted a lot of. Never before seen photos of a um, Bride of Brian Frankenstein, specifically of Valerie Hobson, and we're not no 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 teasers, but mm-hmm. stuff you're not going to see any place regarding Valerie. So I got to throw that out there. One Man Crazy, um, yeah. Life and Death of Conclive, a wonderful book by by Greg. Which if you haven't heard our episode, go back and find it. That was a that was a really fun time. Thank you. So we are, yeah. <laughs> so we got to the point of um, kind of the, of uh, Elizabeth with her premonition self. And shortly thereafter, we meet um, Doctor Pretorius for the first time. So we have get this thundering knock on the door, and uh, you know Minnie goes out and um, you know greets Pretorius for the first time. And um, he just—he's one of Ernest Lestander's is just such a great face and just such a such a great character. Um, I mean, loved him in you know the Old Dark House, and you know, obviously here, just just amazing. So comes in, and um, you know, long story short, basically is. Tempting Henry out of, um, I guess, out of his monster exile. His, you know, he's been doing his own experiments. So Pretorius, real, real quick, Baxter on him was a doctor of philosophy at uh, the college that uh, Henry was attending. So no, they know each other as more of a, a student and um, professor relationship. So Pretorius now comes to him after hearing of Henry's success in experiments with life and death, and wants to partner up. And Henry, you know, of course, who was you know near death at this point, um, who's actually now the Baron, which we can, t- we could talk about. So it, I'm not sure how long of a so time. Something glasses. else has happened
0: off, off camera too, is yeah. that, yeah, that, that, that obviously uh, his, his dad, that goiter on the side of what's his name's uh, neck must've burst or something in Frankenstein. Cause. Well, it's you know, Frederick, like, Kerr. Yeah, Frederick yeah, Kerr. Yeah. So, so, he's, it's, <laughs> so dad's gone.
1: What's well, fine. So they're bringing the body, they're bringing <clears throat> Henry back to the castle. And I forget, somebody says, you know, alert the old Baron Frankenstein. So right. the assumption that he's alive and however long it took Henry to now be in the scene with Valerie and
3: Operatorius, the old Baron has has died. So Henry is now the new Baron. I bet Una O'Connor let out just this terrific shriek, and he <laughs> just had a heart attack right there. And, <laughs> and that was it.
0: Yeah. Like people, people, it's like a roller coaster. People with a weak heart should be around Una O'Connor. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> so it was a really fantastic scene. So um, anyone that's seen this film, it's... Oh God, if there's any... Um, I don't want to say call it hate, but a lot of, um, you know, folks will say Bride is my favorite monster, but I hate, or, or I'm sorry, Bride is my favorite universal or my favorite horror film, but they hate this upcoming scene, which you're going to get to. So we're in Pretorius's small suite or his his flat or, or whatnot. And um, yeah, when you guys want, if you want to take it here. Yeah. So basically it's kind of his unraveling. Um, Pretorius, that is, of his experiments with life. So he'll say to Henry, I've, you know, I, I was too successful with creating life and, uh, leads us to this next scene that,
3: Libby, why don't you take this one? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we go to Pretorius's kind of cabin or, or hideaway, whatever you call it. And, uh, you know, he sits Henry down and, and he comes back out with his, very large case. He's also wearing some type of uh, a hat or something, which I never quite understood. But opens it up and has these jars that are you know dark covering over them. And he's, he's just explaining about his his creations and and the success that he's had. And and as he lifts up these jars, you see that he's essentially created very tiny people and they've all got I guess for lack of a better term a gimmick <laughs> you have a a, a king and, and a queen you know a king who loves the queen but the queen who doesn't like that doesn't like the king you have a priest who's trying to you know keep them apart you have uh, a, like a devil um, and uh, there are some other characters too that I think were cut I think one was a small baby that you can still see part of uh in a long shot if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, it seems like- well, well the, they're they're homunculuses, homunculi. I think is the plural, and it's a it's an alchemical uh, myth that that uh, alchemists or, or whomever would would in more like a middle aged thing, middle ages thing would would have created these miniature creatures and and it's like it's out of out of roots and herbs and and stew. It's almost like they're it's almost like it's almost like beer making, really. It's like it's like a yeah, it's like this chemical alchemical process, um, and 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 it's neat that Henry responds with like this isn't science this is more like black magic which is it, he's out, he's right it's kind of sort of what it is my feeling is it goes back to the idea that that um in, in the book frankenstein in the shelley book um because victor in the book victor frankenstein um is his name uh doesn't have access to like good education in college because he lives kind of on an estate out in the middle of nowhere in switzerland um or germany or wherever he he he, he reads uh Periclesis and he reads like all these old philosopher books and when he gets to college they're like this is what you've been reading we're way ahead of that stuff so he's he he's got a lot of catching up to when he gets to the to, to college actually um but but it it has this idea i think that that pretorius and i think pretorius is is if, if the college is possibly like a religious college or ecclesiastical thing like he's some kind of jesuit or something and that's hence the the hat the the yamaka looking kind of hat he wears uh, once he's lecturing i guess technically to tannery um or it might be his gin drinking hat i'm not sure uh his only weakness I, i'm convinced the entire all the apparatus when you go into his house it, it, with all the beakers and stuff like that i think that's just his still for making gin <laughs> actually i don't think yeah. it has anything to do with <laughs> his scientific research personally um but yeah but i i think that's the that was the conceit of it it is not my favorite scene in the movie either it's a little silly i guess it's the nicest way to say it but it it, it gets us to the next step and i guess that's what it's for right i think i mean I, I'm really
1: quick. And then, you know, Greg, I'd love to hear your take, but I think, I mean, I, what it does is it it gives, you know, two different create or two creators, their different paths to kind of the yeah. same goal. Right. I mean, Henry and, you know, Pretorius, you know, kind of says it very nicely, you know, well, you're in the the graves digging up cadavers. I'm growing mine, you know, from, from yeah. seedlings, like plants. Right. Um. Right. So that's kind of, kind of interesting to see, but, you know, it, but one thing that Petraeus wasn't able to do was the size yeah. for whatever yeah. reason. So now coming together again, they can, you know, this unholy union could create this, like, you know, this dream being, but yeah. and Greg, what do you think about this, this scene uh, between all the, the love and the hate out there over the, you know, from the years, what do you, what do you think? Well, in a sense, I'm
2: glad it's in the film because if it weren't, um we'd be hearing about it forever about you know the long lost scene with pretorius and the homunculi and and uh you know how it must have played and what it must have looked like and uh you know somebody claims they saw the scene in you know 1966 at a theater and you know such and such and all this and it would be going on and on with these rumors about it um It'd be like the spider pit scene in King Kong. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, precisely. It would be, it would be like, you know, one of those great vintage classic missing scenes that everybody dreams of seeing. But, but I agree. I, I think that it, it really could have gone. And I think that, um, Particularly when you figure that the film was cut, uh, and that some of the stuff that they did cut, I think, I mean, if I had to trade, I'd rather have, for example, you know, Dwight Fry's Little Reign of Terror later in the movie uh in there than the the little people scene. Uh the little people scene is it's interesting and it's, you know, it it's it's the special effects are very good and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's it is really so Borderline, ridiculous, silly, and so on—that uh, it, it, you know, it, it almost—it it comes close. It could possibly have scuttled the film, you know, because people would really stop taking it seriously if if they they yeah. took that scene in the wrong spirit. Um, and plus, again, you get into all the other, you know, all the other stuff. You start to wonder about. I mean, you know, how did he? How did he dress them? And. You know, when does he let him out to bathe and, and it, it you know the mind goes in all kinds of, of 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 vile directions when you watch that scene about what happens with those little people. And so it's um yeah, I could I could I,
0: I I'm not a big fan of it. Okay. What <laughs> what happens to them when when Pretorius is it, spoilers, is is killed at the end of the movie? I always wonder like th- he left him at home, right? So Yeah, I guess they all starve. there's little skeletons (laughs) well that
1: that king is really good with escaping i'm thinking the king escapes gets the queen and that could
2: be yeah that king is spry yeah he's uh, yeah i
0: think i think the most important thing about that little scene is is we get exactly we understand exactly what henry understands is is this guy is batshit crazy yes like that's it's important to, to to know that that this guy is is on a on a bad trend. And, and it's not just that Ernest Dessinger walks around with a constant underlight shining up into his face and making him look crazy the whole time. Cause whale just follows him around with a one K shooting up under his nose, the whole movie to let you know how crazy and evil he is. But while like, yeah, Henry's just like, this guy's nuts. And yet goes along with it. Right. Well, a line,
1: a line I, I, I missed. And I, I had it to note in my notes that I want to mention. So back in that bedroom scene, when Pretorius, you know, first meets Henry and Elizabeth, and, you know, Henry explains to Elizabeth, you know, this Pretorius was this doctor of uh, philosophy, and uh, Pretorius basically says, well, I was, you know, I was booted, booted from the, from the, the college. He's booted, dare baron, is another word for knowing too much, which mm. I, I always love that, that line, you know, mm-hmm. speaking of,
3: from- Yeah, speaking of lines too, the, I know I understand the the dislike of the scene with the uh, little people, but it does have one of my favorite lines in the, in the whole movie and probably because just of the the story behind it. And, and I know Greg was touching on this earlier about how whale would find ways to get around the censors. And so Pretorius says, you know, follow your lead of nature. And then he says, or of God, if you like your Bible stories. And I believe, and Greg can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the original line was supposed to say fairy tales. The censors had, kind of screamed about that, said, oh, no, no, you know, you're going to upset some religious people and, and you can't do that. Said, okay, I'll change it to Bible stories. But the way that Ernest Thessinger says it is so much more of a, 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 a slap, you know, in the face of, of yeah. exactly what he was trying to do than, than fairy tales. I, I think it's a great, that's one of my favorite favorite lines in the movie, I think, for that reason.
2: And that is a great close-up of Thessinger near the end of the scene when when uh you know the the the, the, the it's so intense and he sa- and he looks at uh, henry and he says male and female created he them and it's just he's just so vile he's like a you know, like a talking snake or something he's uh so you know he's he it, it it it's it's got its moments but i think overall it's um you know it 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 has it's dangerous from the point of view of kind of scuttling the movie early on and and kind of taking you away from from what the film's really supposed to be about. I th- And I think also that I think whale was so agog about over Thessinger. I mean, he had known him in the London theater and respected him enormously and, and thought he was great as, as everybody did. Uh, and um, you know, they just were, uh, he, it was just the way it, uh,
0: you know, he didn't Wh- want Wh- to. Wh- whale liked big He's- actors. I mean, he liked Uno O'Connor and he liked Thessinger. And, and both of them had worked with Hitchcock. Thessinger worked with George, George Bernard Shaw. I mean, these, they were both like really accomplished, Stage actors and and there's that danger where you know stage actor can can sometimes come across a, a little big on on yeah. you know like like overacting sure. a little bit on them. But Will like that. I mean, Colin Clive is a big actor too. He can do subtle, but sometimes he 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 goes big. And and Greg, you'd mentioned or we had talked about it on on the Colin Clive episode when you're there about how. I, I think there was a decision to to ramp up the, the 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 level of performance on this because it had to hold up to the story and the monster and, and the makeup and the strict fat and the lightnings and stuff like that. It, it, it's like everything had to be big yes. or else if, if these people are walking around kind of underplaying it. um the movie falls out of balance, and the whole thing has to be a, a, yeah. a production, right?
2: Yeah, it had to be stylized uh, yeah. dramatically for for it to work. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's one of the great things about the movie is that everybody is able to fit into that stylization so yeah. well. You
0: understand it. Uh, Every, everyone's in the same movie. Yeah, exactly, precisely. Mm-hmm. White fry and and E. Clive and everybody. Yeah, all, yeah. all the way down to they're on the, that same crazy level. Yeah.
1: So we'll get moving on. So we've had the uh, and just as we've been talking about, just the great scene with Henry and Pretorius. So now we're in the countryside of a great scene. Really, you know, beautiful sets of the monster. Um, you know, kind of free for the first time. He's nursing his wounds and um, you know, nearby stream and eating plants. Um, this quick scene with like a little bull peep. Type one girl that he you know scares and um, falls into a pond and he tries to nurture her and of course she freaks out and you know basically alerts a couple of hunters that you know shoots the monster and the monster takes a bullet to the arm. They alert the the burgemeister, so basically the burgemeister turns a a lynch mob now into the countryside against or to, to try to find the monster and you know really tough scene here. And I'm sure there's you know quite a bit to talk about between the. Um, you know, some of the, the Christ-like imagery here. So, um, you know, for those who haven't seen the movie, the monster is taken, um, captured, tied up against a post and raised up. So if you can, you know, as Jesus Christ hang from a cross, we now have the monster, um, you know, almost a flailed um, up on this post with the villagers, you know, throwing rocks and, you know, just trash at him. So, yeah. um, I mean, there's nothing
0: subtle about him putting up the monster as as a martyr. I mean, and it, it, the symbology there and stuff like that. He's he wasn't he. I, I'm. That's the thing. I'm actually even amazed. Made it into the film like that alone. That just seems. But again, I think it's just that thing where no one could I think whale was smart enough that no one could quite codify exactly what was wrong with that or something like I don't know, Greg, you might you obviously know probably more about that kind of back and forth than us. I, I
2: think it's interesting that that when the film again went in for its, uh, you know, scouring by the by the sensors before it was filmed, uh, this thing of the of the monster up on the up on the uh, the, the, the pole in the forest uh, went right past Joseph Breen. Hmm. uh i mean he missed it entirely and and it's interesting because not only was breen, you know looking for that sort of thing but uh he was an ex-seminarian all right i mean he was he might have been a priest uh had his life not changed uh and, but is somehow it was it, as you were saying it's so it's so crazy it's so off the <laughs> so yeah, it's so, so strange that I don't think anybody thought, oh, he's not really doing that, is he? You know, and so they, they didn't. That's why I'm
0: wondering: is, is this more like a latter interpretation where now we understand, uh, like looking back on this from a safe, you know, distance of eighty odd years, that that okay, no, it's obviously a Christ metaphor. Um, maybe it seems at the time, maybe no one would even have in their wildest dreams thought that they're gonna they're gonna make a comparison between the Frankenstein monster and and. <laughs>
1: But there's so much there's so much Christ or religious imagery, you know, throughout the film I mean we we talked about it before, him knocking over, or we're not quite there yet. But you know, the statue of the bishop versus. and there's still scenes out there today that you can find of him trying to pull, you know, Christ off of the cross of the statue. And even you know, when we get to the hermit's hut there, that very, very last scene of um I think it was uh, I forget the the name of the the man, but the who was working the lighting on the scene, and you get to see that crucifix. Over the bed of the monster, you know, yeah. shine, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there was there was no mistake. I don't know how this could have been missed.
2: Yeah, I think maybe people in the audience who saw it at the time might have thought might have been a little ashamed for thinking it. You know, <laughs> they yeah, know, yeah. They would yeah, thought to themselves, "Oh my heavens, no, that can't be right, and I, I, I should, I should go to confession tomorrow, for having even interpreted it that way." Yeah, you right. know, kind of thing. But you know, something that is really ironic about that is that that the Bride of Frankenstein. Opened on April 20th, 1935, in San Francisco, and that was Good Friday that year, which of course is the day when Jesus Christ was crucified. Right. So many of the people who were in the theater, you, you kind of think, well, gee, they, 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 you know, considering what day it was, it would be very hard for them uh, to have to have missed it, um, considering you know that it was two days before Easter and that this was the day of, of the crucifixion, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, but um, whatever happened, it, they, they got away with it. it, it there was no, there were only a couple of foreign censors actually objected to it. When it played around the United States, you didn't, you didn't see anybody saying, take the, you know, by all means, you must remove that scene. It's so far ahead of its time that I don't think anybody in 1935 figured this is really what they were saying. You know this was um, no way no yeah. way they're
0: doing that yeah exactly so again it's that it's and i think it's it's this thing whale's doing where he's he's proving that he's smarter than breen or, or any of the studios or anything he's proving that he can he can say the things he wants to say and he's smart enough to do it in a way that that no one can no one you know no one is is going to actively pick up on it uh, on a lot of it so yeah but yes. this 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 scene where he does get Captured and tied to the pole, though in this what they call the, I, th- I think it's colloquially known as the the, the telephone pole forest, um <laughs> whales just doing the stuff with in in all these sets with verticality where where there's all these levels and they're running up hills and down hills and there's a waterfall and even um. Even uh, you know, the the sets in in Castle Frankenstein and, and and in the the keep with the watchtower and stuff like that. Like this is expensive stuff. They're building they have to build scaffolding and and, and build a, a ground set that goes up and stuff like that. This is this is real money, but but it what it does, it just keeps it from ending up and no offense to anything, but it keeps it from looking like um the She-Wolf of London or or some of these, you know, the the more just backdrop films that 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 universal would 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 crank out and stuff this just has scope and and Scott's mm-hmm. that verticality we talk about that whale just could bring to a rectangular formatted film and it's and it's just it's 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 why whale is whale the studio at the top of its game and a director at the top oh, yeah. of game. yeah harassment and, and, and everybody they're just yeah. incredible
1: yeah uh, such a great point we talk about you know verticality so much in the 31 frankenstein to some of those interior scenes between you know victor and elizabeth or you know maybe a I don't say a lesser director. You know, a different director would have, um, you know, handled that scene so much differently. But just the verticality of that room of that first meeting, and you know, of course, you know, the 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 um, the laboratory table getting, you know, rising and falling yeah, from the, yeah. the tower and those the, the staircases, and it definitely it's it's Whale's fingerprints Which, all he, over which he does
0: one better in this. And this one, when the when the when the monster goes up, the 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 camera's on a on a crane that goes down, and it adds this whole level of like. Mm-hmm. Vertigo and stuff—it's just incredible. Like, like he's doing yeah. great stuff. He's also Wales. Also, he's cutting on action in these things, even these subtle things. Where there's a moment where Dr. Pretorius closes the door right when he sticks the monster on, on on Elizabeth, and he's like, now. And as he's closing the door on one side, it cuts to the opposite side of the door, and you see him closing and directing. Directors weren't doing that at this time. He Wales and, and I talked about this on The Invisible Man. Like Wales creating the grammar of editing as we as we go here. I mean, he's 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 laying down the tracks that that we still follow today. He's he's such a visionary. You can't under underestimate it.
3: Speaking of of laying down the tracks, when it comes to film music and original film scores, I, I think the Max Steiner score for King Kong in 1933 kind of gave everyone the blueprint of the modern film score. But I, I think, you know, and there's obviously other original music before then in, in earlier films. Um, but the idea that you would could have something like the music in this film that matches so perfectly um, without, you know, any of the, as I call Mickey Mousing, the what you see on the film, yet also matching it perfectly is is something that's just fantastic. And, and it's something that's just been copied over. Ever since, and there's so many great musical touches here, especially so the scene we're talking about, where the, the lynch mob goes after the the monster, and how it kind of builds, and you you've got this you know thumping timpani to it, where uh, you know the people are yeah. are uh, going after it, and the monster is on the run, and it just the music. You know, I heard a, a film composer once say, "Hey, you know, when the film goes left, the music has to go left," and that's exactly what <laughs> what happens here. It's it's just this whole score. This is fantastic. Yeah, I can't say thing enough can't good things be about.
0: Underestimated either. Now this is this is so important for film, and from here it goes to Eric von Korngold and in Robin Hood and and, and onwards into Stein, yeah Steiner and everything like that. This is really an important moment in film music, right right here, sure. well, Livia, I can't wait to and then, and I
1: know you'll mention this at some point, but just that little piece we'll call it like the bride's music. Um, it's really they play it very early on in the film, but you know as you know the creation of of the
3: bride. And later on, just that, that little piece, I, I think it's titled the bride. Yeah. There's, so there's, there's kind of three main themes throughout and you hear all three of them in the main title of, of the movie. There's the monster has a theme is, you know, five notes of the bum 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 bum, mm. And then, you know, of course there's the, the bride and, and then the Pretorius has his own theme, which is a little bit more drawn out as well, but yeah, they, so from the get go from the main title, you know, Waxman introduces the listener or the viewer to, to these themes, And they follow the characters, you know, as, as the movie progresses and I can kind of jumping ahead here, but one of the, the best things, I I mean, still today, great example of how the music in the, in a movie can, can match each other without being too, as I said, cartoonish is the, uh, the creation scene and the, the beating, you know, thump that matches the heartbeat, you know, and it goes on for a good 10 minutes and, you know, slowly builds as they bring the, the bride to life. There's so much I think a lot of times when you when you think about classic scores sometimes they classic film scores they they get a little bit of a bad rap because you imagine there's just this like over the top melodramatic you know. You know, huge brass and you know, sweeping, romantical scores and stuff like that. And more often than not, that's not the case. Yeah, and the same goes for this one as well. The music can be very subtle, very scary, um, very beautiful. And it just—I could not think of a perfect match uh, to this. And it was—it's was one of Franz Waxman. I mean, he's—he went on. He spent very little time at Universal before going on, I think, to Warner Brothers, uh, and just having fantastic, you know, success. Really. So, um, but. This is one of his, I think, first or second scores in, in Hollywood. And James Whale had already heard his work and I think already had him in his mind. And, and they had a chance at meeting at a Christmas party, I think in 1934. And, you know, Waxman was, I think, 29 years old around that time. And, and, uh, Whale knew exactly what he wanted and, and he definitely got it. Wow. Wonderful. Great facts.
2: You sure did. He really did. Mm. Thank you for listening to part one of our Bride of Frankenstein episode. Tune in to
3: part two coming up. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not
0: stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of shadow camera film and entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast.